Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he knows no fear, he knows no danger, he knows nothing. It's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? I'm well thank you, okay, time to guess the tagline. Some sort of comedy about a dumb action hero, uh, I'm going to say, is it The Naked Gun? Oh you're so close, you're so close, it's Johnny English. (laughs) <laughs> which is, uh, you know, and kind of. I always wonder, like, like, do like kind of foreign audiences lap that shit up? Do you know what I mean? Because Mr. Bean is, seems to be kind of insanely popular, and Johnny English, like, when that came out, I was like, I can't think of anything worse than watching this. But it like did insanely well, at, like, overseas, and it did get a sequel years later that was intended purely to succeed with foreign audiences. Mm. Uh, I think. I assume they're big in France, because I know that the Mr. Bean stuff is really, really big there, which is why they set Mr. Bean's Holiday, the barely-remembered Mr. Bean movie sequel, in France, because that's <laughs> those are the people who like it, apparently. Mm, yeah, raking in the Euros abroad. Yeah, I remember like, I started a job once, and I kind of met my team of like people I was working with in, in kind of my direct vicinity, five or six people, and kind of making small like talk with people, and one girl just walked up to me. First thing she said was, "What's your favourite Mr. Bean episode?" <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, is this is has it really got that much cultural cachet that like <laughs> it's not even like you know, hey, what, what music are you into? Like you know, what football team do you support? What's your favourite Mr. Bean episode?" I didn't stay in that job for very long. I don't know what happened <laughs> to her. She might be dead now. Who knows? Anyway, guys, we're talking about blockbusters this week because a film came out this week which has had a lot of tongues wagging across the internet for various reasons, and that's the Ghostbusters reboot. We both saw it this week, didn't we, Ed? And what did we think of it collectively? I thought it was pretty good, yeah. I mean, I went in hoping to like it because I like Paul Feig and I don't like the people who have been kind of uh, giving it one who had been giving it one star on IMDb before they'd even seen it or had any chance to and I had grown so annoyed by the discourse about it that I wanted to go and just see it regardless of what the reviews were like but the reviews came out they were pretty solid and even though it wouldn't be my favorite of Paul Feig's films, I think Spy is still probably my favourite of his. I still thought it was a kind of a solid addition to his canon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I laughed an awful lot, I have to say. I did feel like it was quite clunky in places. Mm-hmm. I felt like the film just ended as well. Yeah. Which was, was kind of a bit of a, a bum note for me. And I would say the last kind of negative thing I'm going to say about it is is I felt like Whenever we had a callback to the previous films, the other Ghostbusters films, like we had a member of the old cast come back or there was some really kind of like patently obvious dialogue or kind of scene construction around the old films, I felt like it stopped the, the film dead in its tracks. And the, the problem is, is that the, the new cast and the new kind of like team they have going forward managed to bring so much kind of energy and spunk to it that it just kind of seemed to throw it all off course. And it's a shame because... The new guard had more than enough chemistry to carry the film, you know, on their own backs. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy were great as the, 
I guess they were they were the closest thing the film had to straight men mm-hmm. or straight women, I guess, in that they were there to kind of handle the plot heavy elements and they had something of an emotional arc in that they were friends who had grown apart over time and they were reunited by their shared love of the paranormal and their work being vindicated and then repeatedly ignored by everyone. And Leslie Jones, I thought, was was really, really funny. And I liked that the film didn't do what it suggested it was going to do with the trailers, which was to have her be kind of the just kind of street smart one. I mm. like the fact that the reason why she knew all this stuff about New York was they explained she's just a rabid reader of nonfiction books. Because mm. I think it would have been way too easier to just kind of like go, yeah, she's black. She probably knows a lot about the way New York works. Yeah. Uh, it- and a little bit like when they used to have like a boy band and they'd have the black one that did the rap in the middle. You know I mean? <laughs> it was like, I, I was really super worried that it would be like along those lines. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like they made it work and her performance was like a massive part of that. Yeah. And obviously Kate McKinnon, everyone saying she steals the show and she really does, having been the best part of Saturday Night Live for the better part of a decade at this point. She was great and I loved that they let her be completely weird and herself and occupy her own little mini movie every time the camera turned on her Mm, yeah yeah and like it would have been very easy for a performance that large to derail a film Mm -hmm. but in this it kind of just it's it's the most kind of magnetic thing about it every time she's on screen you can't stop looking at her weird haircut which i'm sure i mean probably people have kind of put this together already but it looked like uh, what Egon's haircut was like in the real Ghostbusters. Kind of like a kind mm. of white Mr. Whippy hairdo. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think what their collective performances really just and Chris Hemsworth as well, who was great as the dumbest man who's ever lived. <laughs> yeah. As kind of a even more muscular and more Australian version of John Hamm's character from 30 Rock. Mm. who obviously was so pretty that no one ever told him told him that he was terrible at everything he did. Uh, and I really liked that Paul Fee let all those actors really play around, and I think it was demonstra- demonstrative of how generous a filmmaker he is. I think he's someone who clearly loves bringing funny people together and letting them do whatever they want, and that is why his films are always really kind of warm and enjoyable, but also why they're often really unevenly paced and very choppy. And that was definitely on display in this one, I felt. Some mm. of the pacing was very slapdash. Yeah. I felt a bit like a bit weird because I've not really kept up with what the film is about. I just kind of, once I saw the trailer, I was like, okay, that's cool. I'll just wait to see it. I don't really need to know anymore. But what I was confused about until quite a way into the film was that the trailer seemed to suggest that it was a sequel because the trailer started with something like, you know, 20 years ago, like, you know, some people saved New York City. Now it's a new generation's turn or whatever. But it wasn't. It was a complete remake. And, you know, it was that was a kind of that threw me at the start. That really kind of, yeah, baffled me a little bit. Um, and then I just, yeah, come back to the, the main criticism of I really wish they hadn't have had to include Murray, Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson because those cameos were so kind of i don't know cringeworthy i mean i mean mm. the peaks with ozzy osbourne which is oh that was the worst thing which is a cameo that would have been tacky 10 years ago 
and to make it now, you know, it just it was one of those kind of awful things of like a daytime metal show, which I don't really understand why that is a thing, but that Ozzy Osbourne would be there and making it, you know, that that reference is is stone cold. <laughs> I don't really understand why that was in there at all. But then at the end, when spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, you know, we hear about Leslie Jones's uncle who she's borrowed a van off, and I was like, well, we haven't seen Ernie Hudson yet. Oh, I mm. wonder who this uncle's going to be. And I was like, well, if I can telegraph it and you can see it coming, you know where it's going to come from, then it's just a tired reference that, you know, no one really needs. As soon as Ozzy showed up, I just found myself thinking uh, how old it made me feel because I remember him and the rest of the Osborne clan being in the second Austin Powers film doing essentially the same joke mm. of playing on the fact that, hey, we managed to get Ozzy Osbourne in a movie. And it suddenly made me realise that that, was, that film came out 17 years ago. Yeah. Which, yeah. So if nothing else, that moment reminded me of the ravages of time, not just because it was showing me Ozzy Osbourne's face and I haven't seen it in about 10 years. Mm. The thing that, I, that was really annoying about the cameos is that me, you and I have spoken about this before offline that there is a a nod to Harold Ramis who appears, obviously he passed away a few years ago, but he appears in the form of a bust in a university, in Columbia University, which is a nice, a nice touch. And that was the sort of thing where you think, okay, if that was what all of the throwbacks were, all the reference were, were just little things like when Bill Murray shows up on TV for the first time, I thought, oh, that's, that's, good enough they would have him just appear on a tv program playing an unrelated character but then he shows up there at their office and acts and so and demands that they demonstrate to him how their equipment works and prove that they do have a ghost and it drags on and it's such a distracting thing because it happens in the middle of an already in progress scene and like like you say it disrupts the chemistry that has been established between the characters and it was the sort of thing where you looked at it and thought that character could have been played by anyone and it would have been fine. The fact that they cast Bill Murray meant that it had to be a big thing and it was a horrible distraction. Mm. And then Bill Murray is swiftly killed. and Apparently, but it's not referenced because obviously he's fallen out of a window and if he's dead, they would all be arrested because they've got no proof that a ghost did it. Yeah. I mean, it just like, raises a lot of questions. What? Well, well, I mean, even if that he like kind of, let's just say he didn't die, they're allowed to leave the scene of the crime pretty easily. Mm. Uh, although they are like whisked away to meet Andy Garcia, who does get one of the film's best jokes when Kristen Wiig accuses him of being like the mayor in Jaws, <laughs> which, which I thought was really, really funny. Yeah, that was that was a great out of nowhere, or I say out of nowhere. It would have been an out of nowhere reference if someone on Twitter hadn't tweeted at uh, Rob Given, who is uh, someone I'm friends with on Twitter, who likes to constantly use the screenshot of the mayor from Jaws every time there's a news story in which someone is trying to calm down a bad situation, <laughs> and they just tweeted him saying, "There's a joke in there for Rob Given." And I thought it's going to be something to do with the mayor from Jaws, but mm. even even then, seeing it in context, it was a lot of fun. Mm. I think my favourite joke was the name of of chris hemsworth's dog michael hat michael (laughs) (laughs) and everything to do with his introduction and there was a really good article on the ringer about this essentially arguing that he is the embodiment of white of kind of white male privilege in that he's an incredibly dumb guy who is incredibly handsome and (laughs) breezes through life with no problems and assumes that people are going to make him a ghostbuster 
uh, and I thought that everything Chris Hemsworth was doing was great at embodying a very lovable example of someone who is messing everything up for the Ghostbusters constantly. Mm, mm. I, I mean, I've always liked him as a comedy force. I really enjoyed mm. his uh, hosting of SNL, kind of maybe a year before last, I think. I kind of thought that was one of the season's highlights. I always thought he had kind of very good comedy timing. I mean, you don't really get to see it very often, but yeah, I enjoyed him in that. Um, it'd be hard not to talk about the controversy um, yeah. surrounding Ghostbusters. And I, I said this to you before we kind of started recording, that it's just stupid to even call it controversy because a group of people on the internet have decided it's controversial that, you know, I saw Ghostbusters... Um, referred to in a major kind of online outlet as the most controversial film of the year. And I mean, that film came out over here on the same day as The Neon Demon, the uh, Nicholas Wiley <laughs> Reffin film. And I'm just like, well, hang on, what's happened? And I said to you before we went on, like, it's upsetting because, you know, that's kind of true. It has kind of become controversial for, for you know, for kind of reasons that are just beyond my comprehension. But also, that's just insane that that is that it's managed to get to this point that the first question that's asked of Paul Feig and the cast in the press junkets is, well, what about the controversy of this film being made? And it's just like, fucking seriously? It's, you know, it's fucking Ghostbusters. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I like, like I, I, will, I, I was uh, maybe five when I saw Ghostbusters and I remember like being babysit by my auntie and they rented Ghostbusters and being absolutely terrified of the of the librarian scene and then uh, kind of having nightmares about it for ages but enjoying the film so much that the same year on the very first comic relief showing my age here before you were probably born Ed I went dressed as a Ghostbuster which I'm sure not what the people of Africa needed at that time but it, they said fancy dress and I can't blanch I went in some like grey pyjamas and I made a proton pack out of a quality street tin and a Robinson's uh, orange squash bottle I loved Ghostbusters when I was a kid but like when they said they were remaking it my first thought was not Jesus Christ that's absolutely terrible um, it was oh that'd be cool do you know what I mean? Plus, also, I remember Ghostbusters 2, which is awful. Mm. Which, like, it baffles me that this... I mean, like, I could, I could kind of understand a nerd backlash if they said, we are going to remake Star Wars and we're going to let Zack Snyder do it um, using only his penis. Because that would be, by any kind of, a, like, objective measure, a terrible idea. Whereas this, you know, by any objective measure, is not a bad idea. You know what I mean? It's like, even if you don't like Paul Feig's films, you're like, well, you know, the cast might have something to offer or, like, you know, it, we might have something to add to this film 20 years on after it was made or whatever, 30 years on after it was made. But no, it seems to have gone, like, the complete opposite way and people lost their fucking minds. And it was interesting seeing that this was the hill that so many people chose to die on. Mm. Because remakes get made all the time and people complain. People complain about it every time because they say oh this is lack of originality hollywood's run out of ideas why do they have to remake good films and all that why don't they remake bad films and all this sort of stuff it always happens and it's always a flash in the pan sort of thing when it first gets announced and then people move on and kind of forget about it then like the first trailer drops and people get annoyed again or they start to say yeah it doesn't look too bad and then it comes out and people forget about it and but this was a constant thing kind of drumbeat going on in the background of the entire production of Ghostbusters every small piece of news about it was met with 
misogyny and sexism and hatred and trolling and all of these sort of things and there was such a oh it's about ethics and games journalism vibe to it <laughs> it's about Be- ethics and ghost busting yeah it was all people saying oh no it's because we don't want them to remake a film and we really loved it when we were kids and it's like no it's because they're making a film with women that didn't used to have women in and this is threatening to you <laughs> and your ideas about what kind of films are for men and what are for women and what are meant to star men and what are meant to star women and it was so transparent as well that that's what it was because there's never been i can't remember a reaction like that for anything and there have been remakes of far more beloved properties in you know cultishly beloved properties in my lifetime that have never received that sort of response and that was the thing about it that was so was on one level really funny because of how transparent it was but also how depressing it was because you could tell as soon as that element of it came into it the sexism everything it meant that there could be no reasonable discussion about the film because when the first trailer came out you and i both said it doesn't look that good mm. you know we both said that that first trailer wasn't particularly impressive but we also said paul feig's films tend not to have good trailers so we'll see how it goes but anyone now anyone who is criticizing the film gets labeled as a sexist anyone who praises it gets they say oh you're being paid by the studios to get good reviews and all this sort of thing and it's impossible to have a reasonable discussion about the film and that is the the kind of the really awful thing about it is that once that element of the internet decided that this was the film they were going to try and destroy and fail to in the fact that it's come out and it's looking like it's going to be at least a moderate success which you know they can maybe claim as a slight victory but clearly it's done it's probably going to do well enough to get a sequel and that'll be even bigger and all this sort of stuff Mm. and it's giving chill young girls a group of of people to look up to women who are scientists who are weirdos (laughs) you know that offers people inspiration and hope you know it's kind of hard for them to claim that as any sort of a victory but the the entire conversation about it from all sides has become so toxic at this point that it was so strange going to see the film and thinking that it was some sort of political act to go and watch a remake of Ghostbusters starring funny people that I like. Mm, yeah, almost felt like, yeah, I've voted now. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've done my bit. But, I mean, I will, we'll kind of end this Ghostbusters bit with... Um, something that did happen in the screening I was in. I was in the the very first screening of the day, um, in the in the Sheffield Odeon, a place we both know and love. Mm. Um, and it wasn't full by any means, but there was a group of about eight to ten kids in there, probably. You know that well. The kind of holidays in in South Yorkshire are kind of spread. They stagger them, so they're obviously on their first first proper day of their summer holidays watching the film. And at the end of the film, they all clapped. As soon as the film finished, and then they all sat in their seats whilst the credits rolled, which obviously does provide a good three or four minutes of Chris Hemsworth dancing, which is always worth seeing. And then they waited to the end, watched the post-credit scene, and they clapped again. And then I was like, I I don't often see that, and those kids absolutely loved it. They put everyone in my screen and seemed to really enjoy it, but those kids in particular really dug it. It was a mixture of boys and girls, and I was just like, well, there you go. Hopefully they'll go to Comic Relief next year dressed as Ghostbusters in grey pyjamas with a Robinson's bottle and a Quality Street tin on their back. Because ultimately, that's the argument quashed. If kids like it, it's not ruined anyone's childhood, has it? 
no, it's if anything, it's improved their childhood and my adulthood because it was, it's, you know, the news has been terrible these days. It was nice to go and watch a film that was really warm and loving and funny. Mm, yeah. So yeah. no one, no one's childhood has been ruined by this film. I would say, you know, it's just thrown into stark relief how terrible their adulthood is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So as Ed said, the Ghostbusters has uh, been what well, it's shaping up to be uh, a moderate success. It's earned decent coin in, in a few days. I think it's earned about a third of its budget back just from America. And kind of in a couple of weeks, we'll probably get to see how big a hit it's going to be. But it's kind of a standout, really, because this summer's blockbuster season has been very, very hit and miss with the emphasis more likely on miss. And the summer is also always very important to studios. It's estimated that a studio will make kind of 40% of its revenue for the year in the kind of the, the months of uh, June, July and August, which is, you know, quite a wedge. But this year, there's been a few kind of misfires and so many so that we thought we would probably have a look at why there seems to be a trend developing in kind of like layman's terms, Ed, just sum up what we're looking at. We're not looking at an entire summer of disasters, are we? But we're looking at kind of very notable films underperforming in quite a significant way. Yeah, I mean, this episode is is going to be titled The State of Blockbusters, but I think people really have the emphasis on the state of Blockbusters <laughs> because there really have been a lot of films that have come out that either should have been surefire hits that weren't or that should have at least done reasonably well and completely tanked. So there are some films that have done well. You know, Captain America has earned over $400 million, which was a big improvement on its previous one, made more than a billion dollars worldwide. Deadpool earned $363 million in the US and $782 million worldwide, despite only costing $58 million. So that is probably the most profitable film of the year, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything else is probably going to rival it, even if the new Star Wars comes out and makes like $2 billion. I don't think it will make as much pure profit as Deadpool. Then you got stuff like Finding Dory, Zootopia, Secret Life of Pets, and The Jungle Book. There's also an interesting trend that someone pointed out on Twitter that we have had six films this year open to more than $100 million in their first weekends in the US, which are Captain America, Batman vs. Superman, The Jungle Book... Deadpool, Finding Dory, and The Secret Lives of Pets. And that equals the record for films to open in a year to $100 million. And so that record will be broken pretty easily this year. Like probably Suicide Squad will do it. If not, something that will come out at the end of the year will do it. Mm. So on one level, you can look at that and say, oh man, you know, all these films are doing really well. But then you go beyond like that, that six and then Zootopia, which opened to less than those did, but did really, really well over a long period of time. And then you look at things like Independence Day Resurgence, which cost $165 million and only earned only earned $98 million in the US, which is a third of what the original earned back in 1996. Mm. Or you look at something like X-Men, which earned $155 million but cost $178 million, uh, and was a big step down from Days of Future Past, which was yeah, a, a kind of a, a big hit for that franchise. Or Alice, a Through the Looking Gas, which cost $170 million and has so far earned $277 million worldwide when the previous installment earned more than $300 million in the US and a billion dollars worldwide. So there are a lot of films that are failing compared to even relatively reasonable expectations. 
Plus, we're getting kind of new definitions of failure, aren't we? Because mm. something like Batman versus Superman, a film we've talked about before, and now we're pleased to report, well, I'm not pleased to report at all, we've both seen this movie. And that, I mean, that's a film that made over a billion worldwide, right? No, it didn't. It made 872. Wow. I mean, that that in back in the day, that would be, that's kind of Lion King numbers. But mm. that is seen as a, kind of fairly widely as a failure. Um, I mean, A, because the film is fucking bobbins uh, and B because I guess they had much higher expectations for it I think did you say on a previous episode that you know anything below 1.5 billion would have been you know a black mark yeah I mean definitely anything less than a billion would have been seen as a terrible black eye for Warner Brothers because it was a follow-up to a film that did fairly well. I think Man of Steel earned something like six hundred million worldwide, uh, so that was a pretty good start for a reboot to a franchise. And they were adding Batman, who obviously is the biggest name in superhero movies. If you go on how well the Christopher Nolan movies did, and and historically, when you go back to the Tim Burton films in the eighties, and one of the Joel Schumacher films in the nineties, and so that that should have been a big boost for it and it was going to be launching the launching pad for Wonder Woman into her own film and introducing the members of the Justice League so they wanted it to be their Avengers the Avengers earning 1.6 billion a few years ago but instead it earned probably two between 2 and 500 million dollars less than what they would have needed for it to be a true launching pad for their own equivalent to the MCU uh, and it and it fell flat on its face in so far as a film that makes 872 million dollars can fall flat on its face. Mm. And I mean I mean they still seem to be carrying on with it with kind of renewed confidence. I mean they're, mm. they're doing the committed to not one but two Justice League movies that Zack Snyder's done. I mean these are uh, films that you've done well at the box office but have been critically mauled uh, mm-hmm. across the board. I mean, that's the big difference between them and Marvel, I guess, is that Marvel's films make a lot of money and they also, you know, critics and audiences seem to really like them. Yeah, that's, I think, the the thing that they're really worried about is that Batman vs Superman, even though I preferred it to Man of Steel, I think that's a, a minority of op- opinion. I don't think it's a, a good film, but I think it's bad in fascinating ways. Whereas Man of Steel was just dull as shit. And, but, but if they get really bad reviews for Batman vs Superman and the creative team remains largely unchanged between this and Justice League, which seems to be what's going to happen because... By the time the reviews are in for Batman vs Superman, they'd pretty much already started production on Justice League, so they couldn't fire Zack Snyder, which I think probably would have been the logical thing to do, but it was too late to do that. They are worried that the negative response will impact the box office for the next film, because you the performance of a sequel is usually seen as a kind of a referendum on the quality of the previous film. If the previous film was widely hated then even if you make an improved film and you make a film that is considered a big step up and and generally writes all the wrongs to the previous film, you'll still be punished because people will say, I don't want to have to sit through that because I sat through the last one and it was a wretched experience. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it had, in terms of numbers and kind of box office, it had a kind of staggering drop-off, didn't it, from its opening Mm. weekend to, to its kind of 
what what we were at five days later because I mean that's generally tends to signify bad word of mouth. But I'm kind of I'm just amazed that people have got any appetite at all for a Justice League movie, given that you know I think in the Marvel movies the kind of characters are a bit more kind of well known. I guess I mean I'm not a comic book guy, um, but I've got no fucking idea who Aquaman is. Mm-hmm. I know who Wonder Woman is. I, the Flash is a TV show. I know that much. There was someone else in the in the in the film Batman vs Superman. They teased, but I don't know who it was. Who was it? It was a Cyborg. Who What's is the, okay? As the name suggests, a Cyborg. Is that a super, that's just that's just a robot, right? A robot man. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a robot man. Is it? I hope it's a crossover from the John Claude Van Damme film Cyborg from the eighties, which was always one of my guilty pleasures growing up. Uh, even as a as a teenager, I knew it was horrendous. But there was a bit where John Claude Van Damme kicks a man's head off. So, you know what I mean? That can only be a good thing. But, I mean, I think the problem with Batman versus Superman that I find, and I've said this to you before, well, yeah, before we went on, that it's just so relentlessly dour and serious mm. in tone and, like, everything is grave and just grey and, like, kind of muddy brown and... It, trying to kind of posit these kind of two essentially an alien in pants and a bored millionaire who is <laughs> kind of a sociopath who just beats up criminals uh, tries to kind of posit them as, as kind of like huge ideological forces and, and kind of seeing them pitch off against each other like they're not just men in costumes punching each other in the face and it's it's just so like to kind of evoke things I mean obviously Man of Steel had a pretty heavy-handed Jesus tip going on. I mean, that continues. But to evoke things like fucking Hurricane Katrina, which, you know, I kind of think that's like one of the, you know, a great American human tragedy. And here we have fucking Superman turning up to save the day. It's just, I find it, it leaves a very sour taste. Yeah, I mean, you start the film off with 9-11 imagery. And then it just gets worse from there. <laughs> uh, is is perhaps suggests that he either has a very poor grasp on the images that he's creating, or he doesn't really care about the tragedies that he's evoking in his work. Uh, although the the moment when he evokes Katrina kind of made me laugh because of how slowly Superman was going around rescuing people. <laughs> he was descending very slowly from the sky to these people. Are you kind of thinking you're just doing this for show, aren't you? I mean, you could or, fly a little more quickly and then just pick them up. Or he's working for FEMA. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he doesn't want to make he doesn't want to make them look too bad. But yeah, and, and there's such a disconnect between the seriousness with which the story is told and the actual details of the plot, which is in many ways on a par with a lot of comic book storytelling in that it takes a lot of big logical leaps. There's characters spouting off cod philosophical dialogue. There's a sequence in which Superman goes before Congress, which is ridiculous on its face, but is the sort of thing you could see happening in like a silver age comic because that that is a very much that is very much in keeping with the sort of things that would happen with superman in those days and those are the sort of you know when you go on on twitter and things people like to post particularly ridiculous panels from from comics and and there's lots of juicy stuff from that uh, like that to choose from 
in the, the the Superman pantheon stuff like oh Superman is now a gorilla and things like that. So him going before Congress could work if you were doing it with the tone of the Richard Donner movies, which were a lot lighter in tone, or the Richard Lester films, which were definitely a lot lighter in tone. So the idea of Superman going before Congress would make sense there, but presenting it like it's Mr. Smith goes to Washington or something feels really, really out of place. Uh, And when you if you kind of imagine a slightly less serious version of the movie would be a lot more fun. Something like the moment when Batman's hate for Superman dissolves completely because they have a mother with the same name. Mm. That's, that's the kind of big melodramatic moment that you think that that could work if this was like an animated movie or if it was a comic book or if this movie had any sense of levity to it whatsoever, but because it's so relentlessly dour for the first hour, by the time you get to this kind of, really pulpy stuff in the middle and then towards the end it's hard for it to make that shift from uh from pseudo intellectual pretentiousness to out 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 and out camp mm, yeah yeah and just to kind of go back to superman in congress superman testifying in congress uh, th- then kind of leads to a suicide bombing which in which everyone is killed but the last thing we see is Holly Hunter looking at a jar of piss. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And plus, I said to you kind of in our notes before this, there was a bit in the middle with like a dream sequence that mm-hmm. I, I'd i kind of tuned out the film. I was watching it at home on DVD and I just kind of just tuned out for like five minutes and then I just kind of snapped back into it and there was like a post-apocalyptic landscape and Batman had a shotgun and there was like flying termites and then there was a red spaceman coming through a portal and I was like, fuck, what's happening? <laughs> I've got no idea. What like is this the same film? Have I have I slept through this and kind of woken up in an alternate reality? I'm not sure what's going on. And it's you know, I still don't really understand what was happening in those bits. But yeah, I I think that um it's very bold for them to continue. Like I don't know what they've got invested in. Uh, the Justice League thing. I don't know whether they just think that throwing more things at it will make it stick. But and it's not as if they're bringing kind of lots of kind of star wattage into it, are they? I mean, Jason Momoa playing Aquaman. I don't know who's playing Wonder Woman. Is it Gail Godot? Is that who's playing it? Yeah. Uh, yes, that's her. Yeah. The other people are they? Are they particularly big box office draws? I don't actually know if they've cast anyone as Cyborg yet because it was just kind of a human mass in that video. Uh, showing him but Ezra Miller is playing the Flash mm. playing I guess the most kind of wan and sallow faced version of a fast and athletic superhero you could ever possibly imagine mm, but... maybe you'll hand out flyers outside a coffee shop saying do you want to come see my band <laughs> uh, you, you know he'd be playing speed metal as well yeah, yeah just yeah. really shred those guitars every night mm. um, but yeah I mean even though I, I, I didn't hate Batman versus Superman, I recognise that it at its heart is everything wrong with blockbuster filmmaking because it tries to do the shared universe thing, which Marvel obviously did fantastically because they set up all of these characters separately, occasionally ditched actors because they didn't work out so well, but more or less they, they built this thing bit by bit and had these characters that people liked and got to know over their individual films. Then they all joined together for a big crossover event. And then they all went off and did their own separate films and and became bigger stars and bigger names as a result, bigger brands, I guess, if you want to get into 
wanky marketing terms but they they all that that they did it the smart way and dc have tried to do it reverse engineering it by introducing these characters in a film not even really introducing them showing some of them on cctv cameras in i guess probably the most the laziest example of franchise filmmaking i've ever seen uh and then not really and, and then hoping that the mere fact that these characters are teased will make people interested in them even though what we see of them isn't that fascinating particularly not uh of jason momoa very slowly floating towards a camera which mm. just made me laugh because it was so ridiculous and, and looked so dumb in the context of the movie mm. uh, and, and because all it tells us about him is that he can destroy a camera underwater which isn't the most impressive of powers no no what is it? What is the kind of the failure of Batman versus Superman and maybe some of the other superhero movies tell us? Is it is it that there's perhaps a certain fatigue setting in, or is that kind of rendered kind of moot by the fact that Civil War did so well? I think that there isn't necessarily a fatigue for a particular genre, unless you're going to say the blockbuster is a genre, which I think is kind of a hard thing to say because you could also say something like American Sniper is a blockbuster because some films become blockbusters after the fact. Mm-hmm. Like, they're films that shouldn't be massive successes, but actually are. I think you could probably put Deadpool into that as well. That's a film that no one expected to be a big success because it was budgeted for, like, $58 million. You know, that was very much a risk that happened to pay off, whereas if you are investing 250 something million in a film, you probably have expectations that you're going to make that money back. And in mm-hmm. a lot of cases, people don't. I think what has been the case a lot this year is that sequels people are becoming tired with particularly the wave of legacy sequels that came in, that seemed to have just sprouted up in the wake of just uh, Jurassic World which is weird but you know Jurassic World came out last year and suddenly everyone's trying to think of a property that they can dust off after a long period of time to try and make a huge amount of success and it's interesting that this year Independence Day resurgence seemed to step into that slot and they were saying, you know, this was a film that was a massive blockbuster in the 90s. People remember it fairly fondly. Or, we, you know, we can just trade out the old cast, bring some some people back, but mainly f- put kind of bland new actors in it and people will respond. And for some reason, that formula worked a lot for Jurassic World and didn't work for Independence Day resurgence. Uh, and more or less, it seems to be that because Independence Day Resurgent was made by Roland Emmerich, who isn't particularly good when it comes to the whole making movies things. Mm, yeah, that will always hold you back eventually. The numbers seem to suggest that Disney are bulletproof, but do you think they've had their fingers burnt by um, the Alice in Wonderland sequel, which is, I think, one of maybe one of those cases where, you know, did anyone really want that sequel? I mean, obviously the first one made a lot of money, but was it just, you know... A zeitgeist thing. I think people just went for it and just got really into it. But then once it was over, forgot about it. And then you know, three or four years later, we get a sequel, and no one's really that fussed. I think that one is definitely a case where the original Alice in Wonderland benefited from a confluence of events. One of which was the Avatar had just been a huge success, and it was the first three D movie to come out after Avatar. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole wave of films that came out in that year that did better than they probably should have because they had 3D effects on it. The other one being Clash of the Titans, which also came out around the same time. At the same time, 
as that was going on, Johnny Depp was at the peak of his powers. Mm. He'd had a few rough, uh, rough years. You know, he'd put out like the Tourist, or maybe that came out later. Uh, well, he he definitely had had passed kind of the the absolute peak when he was putting out things like the Pirates movies, but he was still fairly well liked. He was still someone whose name was more or less associated with quality. But Tim Burton was kind of in the same boat, and so they had a lot of goodwill. Uh, I think their subsequent careers have demonstrated was completely burnt off with that movie, mm. uh, and the fact that it was you know a a a universally recognized property like everyone knows alice in wonderland it's a book that people still read it's a thing that's been adapted a thousand times for film and tv over the years it's stuff that people are familiar with so it's something that people would be interested in seeing a big screen version of but that film by and large wasn't particularly well liked maybe if they'd put out a sequel two or three years later it would have done okay but waiting six years i think clearly they they missed the boat on that because the popular opinion around the film had calcified to such an extent that everyone remembers the original being a terrible movie that was inexplicably popular. Mm. And so they were trying to take an established brand and trying to make a hit out of it. And I think that's something you see also in, uh, in like the Huntsman sequel, the, the sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman, Huntsman Winter's War or prequel, I think it's actually, which you know, the first one did okay. I think it made a couple hundred million worldwide. It definitely made 150 million plus in the US. The sequel made 48 million in America and 164 million worldwide on a $115 million budget. So that was very much, those were definitely cases where the first film did okay, but it had some factors, either the star or the general box office situation around it that drove it to be a success and then when you remove those stars you remove the particular zeitgeisty moment that made it successful then there's no nothing there to support the film you know it just completely fails because there's nothing there to entice people to check out the sequel Mm. with all these kind of blockbusters underperforming or falling by the wayside what is making the money is there some kind of uh, sway the mid-budgeted films that are cleaning up in in the kind of the wake of the blockbusters failure. I'm glad you asked. Apparently, there are. Yeah, what's interesting is that we've had all of these films that have failed in a big way. Most recently, something like the BFG, which has done appallingly bad in the US for for how much it cost, uh, which is a terrible shame. I think it's probably going to go down as the lowest-grossing film of Spielberg's career which is a terrible shame because everyone says it's actually a pretty good movie. Uh, but you also, but opposite that, you have movies that don't cost 150 something million dollars. You have stuff like Central Intelligence, the comedy with Kevin Hart and The Rock, which cost $50 million and has made $180 million worldwide. So that's made at least a little bit of money. And when you've lost a shitload of money on your big superhero franchise, a little bit of money goes a long way. Uh, you have stuff like The Conjuring 2, which cost $40 million and has made more than $300 million worldwide. Or Ten Cloverfield Lane, which cost $15 million and earned $108 million worldwide. The Purge uh, election year, which cost $10 million and has made $150 million worldwide. Me Before You, which cost $20 million and has made $172 million worldwide. There are all of these films that are in genres that tend not to be focused on by big studios because they're more interested in trying to create some massive 
special effects driven franchise that they can invest a lot of money in and maybe make a lot of money in merchandising and ancillary revenue streams at a later date but you have these things which are horror or thriller or romance or comedy things that in some cases won't get a sequel like i don't think there's a sequel to me before you out there unless amelia clark hangs out with another disabled person who wants to kill themselves which would make for pretty grim reviewing i would imagine uh, don't but... don't give again don't give them ideas ed <laughs> maybe they'll do an expanded universe with like you know the theory of everything that kind of thing well at least we know the sequel be called me before two <laughs> so that's built in um but but there's a whole like there, there is a whole swathe of films that are making money that are probably helping the studios offset the money they are losing on the blockbusters to a little extent i mean disney will probably be fine because they've had they've got like four of the five biggest films of the year but like warner brothers and sony are really struggling so it's it's interesting to see that people are more seem to be seeking out this lower budget stuff because it's at least interesting and it's something that they are either unfamiliar with or at least they haven't got tired of like people still are interested in in checking out the conjuring series even though we're two films and a spin-off into that series people haven't got tired of that one yet unlike say teenage mutant ninja turtles which they tied off after a single film mm, yeah, yeah you raised something pretty interesting kind of in the notes for this about the film now you see me because uh, it's a film that kind of made some money first time round. Some people liked it. I personally didn't like it that much. Then they made a sequel to it, which I kind of think even less people liked and less people went to see. But ultimately, is is weirdly getting kind of like a Chinese spin-off. Is this the kind of way that they're talking? I mean, I was looking at uh, Chinese box office figures before we recorded this, and it's a very tough nut to crack. Um, This year, only a handful of films have really done it. And weirdly, there are things like Zootopia, which is... Um, obviously been a big hit everywhere but things like The Revenant have been crazy successful in, in China yeah it's it's very interesting because China are very restrictive about what foreign films get released there and they have like blackout periods where only Chinese films can play in cinemas so it's very coveted for a film to play there and so and some films clearly play there quite well because they're something that people just don't see that much they don't really see that many western movies so when one shows up they kind of flock to it although it is a bit of a mixed bag for example i think pixar have never had a hit there Mm. even though most of their films have at some point or another certainly in recent years played there they've they've never broken through in the way that zootopia has there but yeah like you say uh now you see me two parts of it is uh filmed in china and so it's done very very well because there's that local connection and it's got local support from filming there and because of how how well it's doing there the a chinese company is stepping up and they say oh we're going to do our own version that'll be in a canonical spin-off from it so i guess it'll be just more people doing cgi assisted magic but now they'll be chinese uh, so there won't be a huge amount of difference i imagine but it's very interesting because that's the second time i've heard of a Chinese studio wanting to make a speak a sequel or spin-off to a movie that hasn't done that well everywhere else, but happened to do really well in China. The other one being uh, the Green Lantern. No, not sorry, the Green Hornet, 
which was not a very big success worldwide, but did really well in China because the guy who played uh, Kato was, I believe, a huge star in China. And so at one point there was talk of them doing a Green Hornet spin-off that was just about him and that didn't feature Seth Rogen in any way. Mm. Uh, and because China is seen as the great kind of untapped potential market for Hollywood because it's slowly opening up and there is, and, and, and things like Warcraft, which has earned something like $300 billion there. $300 billion. Sorry, million. Sorry, I was going to say, because that would be a runaway success, Ed. Yeah, that would be the biggest film of all time. Mm. And next year, every movie would be Warcraft, <laughs> if that had happened. Um, yeah, because it's earned $300 million over there you know that that's the sort of thing where they say well you know we could continue with this franchise it doesn't matter that everyone else in the world has more or less rejected this thing the fact that it's done really well in china means that you know that we can have a franchise here but because so little of the money actually makes its way out of china to the us i think it's some somewhere between 10 and 25 percent of the gross in china actually makes it back to studios it's that thing where you have to have a th- a film make a massive amount of money to actually make any sort of a go of it there. Uh, and no one has really cracked it yet. I guess Warcraft is the closest, but the balance sheets are incredibly hard to justify the amount of money that you require to make a big fantasy epic based on a video game that a lot of people don't play anymore. Mm. I wonder what that, that kind of means for Warcraft because Warcraft kind of met with a fairly lukewarm reception over here, but has done it's done pretty decent numbers uh, overseas. We saw something quite similar with the uh, Terminator Genesis. Was it last year or year before? Which uh, actually did pretty decent uh, overseas, but you know ate a big kind of plate of shit on in the US. But you know, no one's clamoring for a for a sequel for the Terminator films on a on on the kind of overseas sales do you think the warcraft will will be kind of sequelized or do you think its performance over here and kind of the general reviews and word of mouth um haven't been strong enough i think it probably i think they could find some way to make a sequel if they slash the budget i think the problem with a lot of these movies is that things like ghostbusters which is probably going to do okay but it still cost 144 million which is way too much for a comedy because it's really hard for comedies to recruit that much money. You know, things like The Hangover could do it, but that was a kind of runaway success that no one saw coming and it happened to make 300 million. Or uh, also a recent kind of release that has done actually not as bad as I think people intended, The Legend of Tarzan, Mm -hmm. which has earned over a hundred million dollars in the U S which is way more than I would have expected. Uh, yeah. And, and would look like it was going to be kind of a sizable or at least a moderate sized hit that could justify the continuation of the series. Unfortunately cost $180 million to make. Mm. Uh, and so that's where the problem comes in is these films that are being designed to launch franchises cost huge amounts of money and it's really hard for them to recoup it instead of, trying to make these films not on the cheap because you know these films have to cost a certain amount of money to actually look good and entice people but making films for like a hundred million dollars instead of 200 million suddenly changes the game a lot you know it means that the threshold for success is a lot lower and it means that there's a greater chance that you can actually make the big uh 
epic sequel that you want to do that isn't going to happen now because your film has made 500 million dollars worldwide but that still somehow isn't enough Mm, mm. interesting so to kind of wrap things up ed is the uh the blockbuster just having a bad year uh is it this the kind of the peak of a of a trend that's been continuing or um do you think it's the kind of beginning of the end i think i would hope that it is the beginning of the end of a particular kind of blockbuster model which is one that is overwhelmingly focused on sequels and not just the idea of oh this first film was a success we're going to make a second one but of the whole shared universe franchise thing where every film is just a chapter setting up the next film which is inherently unsatisfying and unless people can tweak the formula and make films stand alone a bit more but then kind of lead on to a sequel which is kind of what Ghostbusters does uh, a little better than a lot of these other stuff, certainly better than Batman vs. Superman does, you know, unless they can do that, or unless people say, hey, maybe we should try out some more original ideas, because one of the things that's been impressive this year is, like, Zootopia, as original idea, has made a huge amount of money, like The Secret Life of Pets, original idea, makes a huge amount of money. There is ample proof that you can make money with original ideas or fresh spins on old ideas. It doesn't have to be just a sequel to a film that came out two years ago that did okay Mm. you know i would like to think that people would say would realize the limits to expanded universe stuff franchises shared universes and that there is they would try and invest in more original scripts that don't cost the world to produce Mm. and you want to see if you want to make a sequel you want to people clamoring to see it you don't want to find out about a sequel and you're like "Mm, okay you know what i mean Mm. which seems to be the approach for what they're doing at the minute you know uh kind of leave them wanting less approach which yeah doesn't seem to be working so anyway blockbusters huh who knew uh let's do recommends this week ed what you got I'm going to recommend a movie from 1971. We were talking about Ghostbusters earlier, which is a female-driven comedy in that it was co-written by women and it stars a lot of very funny women. So I'm going to recommend A New Leaf, which is a comedy written and directed by Elaine May, who is a fantastic filmmaker whose career was fatally uh, derailed by the film Ishtar, which she made in 1987. But before then, uh, and Ishtar's not even that bad, it's just not particularly good and was wildly expensive so she didn't get a chance to make more movies but she made a trio of really great movies in the 70s a new leaf mikey and nikki and the heartbreak kid and a new leaf maybe the best of the three it's really funny she co-stars in it with walter Matthau. walter Matthau plays a kind of trust fund kid whose money's all run out because he's just kind of feckless and spends money willy-nilly and so he has to try and figure out a way of getting more money so he makes a bet with his uncle that if his uncle will lend him money so that he can maintain his lifestyle for six weeks he will get married to a rich person in that time and then pay him back and he settles on Elaine May who's a kind of socially awkward botanist who he finds repellent in every way but she has a lot of money so he goes through with marrying her intending to murder her and it kind of goes from there and it is a hugely funny very bleak and scabrous movie with lots of wonderful dialogue from may delivered wonderfully by 
Walter Matthau. Uh, I watched the on the recent Blu-ray of it, which was uh, put out by Eureka, I believe. There's a little documentary where someone talks about the movie, and they have the best ever description of Walter Matthau, which was saying that he had such an expressive face that he overacts without doing anything, and that aspect of his personality is on full display in the film, where he has to be kind of like baleful and insincere for the entire time uh, and it's a hugely entertaining movie mm. i will want to check that out i was saying to you before we went on that like elaine may is someone i've heard an awful lot about but i've never actually seen any of her films so uh, it is kind of something i would like to seek out i am going to recommend a tv show this week something that has nothing to do with women because i hate women uh, they ruined <laughs> Ghostbusters. Um, but I'm going to um, recommend the HBO show The Night Of, which is kind of filling in the to the spot that kind of Game of Thrones has vacated recently. Uh, it's a uh, kind of a crime thriller, I guess, uh, from the mind of uh, Steve Zalian and crime writer Richard Price, who wrote Clockers and uh, kind of a lot of The Wire, didn't he, kind of later on, I think. Mm. Um, and it is essentially kind of the story of a murder which may or may not have been committed by Riz Ahmed, um, who, you know, we're big fans of. And it is a relentlessly tense um, show in which uh, Riz Ahmed seems to be tried insanely hard to incriminate himself in, in every single way, um, but in somehow a plausible way. Um, he's a kind of a fairly straight-laced college kid who kind of finds himself... Um, kind of in the wrong girl's flat at the wrong time, taking the wrong drugs with the wrong knife in his pocket. Um, and uh, it's a hugely gripping uh, hour of, of TV. Episode one started, it was on last week. Episode two uh, will air in a matter of hours in the US. And I found it kind of kind of nearly unwatchable for its, its level of kind of uh, uh, tension and kind of how unbearable it was, but also how compelling it was. Yeah, it's it's really, really great. I was very impressed with the way they took their time. I know that it's based on the British show Criminal Justice, which came out about eight years ago and starred Ben Whishaw in a, kind of an early breakthrough role for him. Uh, and my understanding is that this version is a lot more slowly paced. It takes its time. And what's great about that first episode is the way you can really see the web closing around Riz Ahmed's character. And it's wonderful and horrifying seeing how elegantly constructed that particular trap of evidence is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good show, and I'm kind of fascinated to see where it's going to go. Because, like Ed said, there is kind of no easy way out of the hole that he's dug himself. Um, So we'll see how that pans out, and we'll let you know if it's any good. So, dear listeners, uh, that's your lot on the subject of the blockbustering crisis. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, why don't you leave us a little review? You know you want to. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, uh, at SRS underscore podcast, and on Facebook as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>